Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 93rd episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by a longtime friend and an eminent breeze within the liberty movement, Bob Poole. Before I even get introducing Bob, I wanted to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, please use the comment section, type your questions, and we will get to as many of them as we can. So Bob Poole is widely recognized as the father of the privatization movement in the United States and abroad. An MIT trained engineer, he has advised administrations both domestically and internationally on privatization reform and transportation policy. Poole co-founded the Reason Foundation back in 1978 and ran its operations for over two decades. His books include Cutting Back City Hall, uh, frequently cited as a touchstone for the Thatcher administration's privatization efforts in the UK. Also a think tank for liberty, which is the story of reason and rethinking America's highways, which explores the history of and possibly better future for our highway and infrastructure. Bob, welcome again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jack. It's really a pleasure to be here. So uh, let's start with you. Um, mm -hmm. we, we know about your accomplishments, but tell us where did you grow up? Uh, what were your early influences and how did transportation and infrastructure <laughs> of all things right. become your obsession and the focus of your life's work. I had no idea any of that would happen. Uh, I grew up in a working class suburb of Miami, Florida, and my dad worked for Eastern Airlines. And uh, okay. so uh, but aviation was part of my growing up. Uh, uh, this was before deregulation. Uh, flying was very expensive, but we had company passes, everybody it was a perk of working for an airline and still is, I think. And we, so we took vacations always by air, mostly by air. And uh, uh, it was just great. And of course, with prices so high, uh, there were only about 50% of the seats filled on most flights. So we always got good seats and it was great growing up that way. Uh, also my hobbies, it turns out were transportation. I had model train layout in my bedroom. I built plastic model airplanes and ships uh, and, and I love cars, uh, and I, I was always enthralled when new cars came out, uh, and uh, uh, so were all my friends. I mean, it's something that we, that we just took a big shine to. And uh, so I guess that, that steered me into engineering, most likely. But I thought I was going to be just an engineer doing engineering. I never thought that public policy would be what I'd end up doing. But uh, my interest in ideas and, and political philosophy blossomed um, at MIT, basically, uh, starting with a course, uh, a required course called Modern Western Ideas and Values, uh, two semesters worth. And uh, reading about the Enlightenment in particular, 
really, uh, it, it prepared my way for reading Ayn Rand. Uh, you know, the idea that the ideas of rationality and of, of discarding uh, doctrines and, and, and uh, the, the strangle, mental strangleholds that happened, that had been held on people before the Enlightenment uh, really was just breakthrough to see. And uh, I was involved politically uh, in the Goldwater, student Goldwater movement uh, in, in 1964. We had the largest uh, campus Goldwater group uh, in, in New England uh, at MIT. And I was the director of, of literature and, and the founder was Dave Nolan, who later went on, a classmate, uh, later went on to found the Libertarian Party and became a lifelong friend. So and everybody, practically everybody in that group, uh, uh, although it uh, was nominally conservative, were budding libertarians, and almost all of them had read Atlas Shrugged. And when they found out that I had, they said, "You got, you got to be kidding! You've got to read this." And so, in the summer of '64, while working at a summer job with the telephone company in Miami, I carried around the paperback book, read it at lunchtime, or read it when I got home, and read it that whole summer. And it, wow. <laughs> it really inspired me to uh, to dream about somehow working with ideas and, and making this a freer country. I, I had no thought of how I would ever do such a thing. And, and uh, I got a job. My first job out of school was working at, at Sikorsky Aircraft. So I was in there was aviation again. But uh, uh, it. it worked out it's amazing uh, how things do sometimes well you know given your engineering background um aviation model trains i mean all of that must have really uh made atlas shrug a, a total i mean even more of a um revelation for for you because i mean it, it wasn't just that here was a novel that uh, was lionizing entrepreneurs and, uh, but it, it was, I mean, who wrote novels about trains and planes well, also, and also, factories? Also, it, 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 it made me something of a feminist uh, because of seeing Dagny Taggart running the railroad, uh, even though she didn't have the title, uh, was very eye-opening for me. And, and uh, I, after I read Betty Friedan's uh, Femin Feminine Mystique the, the, the next summer on my summer vacation. And uh, uh, it, it really, and, and, and Modesty Blaze uh, thrillers. Uh, oh, so of it, course, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The, I those love are those classics, things. very underrated. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would love to see, you know, because they're also uh, within the, aesthetic of romantic realism mm -hmm. um just these uh this heroic character doing crazy things kind of like uh you know charlie's angels which is why ayn rand also found that as one of her favorite uh, uh -huh. her television series but getting back to another book which is yes. the subject of this uh yes. this yes. interview uh rethinking american america's highways a 21st century vision for better infrastructure. Um, you make the argument that, quote, our 20th century model overly politicizes highway investment decisions, shortchanging maintenance, mm -hmm. and often investing in projects whose costs exceed their benefits. Uh, so where, what, you know, you, you have a quite a historical sweep in, in the book. So yeah. maybe just kind of 
contextualize us a little bit. Where and when did we go wrong with our approach to infrastructure? Uh, you know, roads are always the, the thing where people said without government or, right, you know, right. limited government, but my roads, like what would we do without the roads? So, right, right. Uh, so I found it ironic to be somebody who, who's basically calling for privatization of, of, of at least of the highways. Uh, but no, the, the actual, the first highways in America were turnpike, were private turnpikes. And that's, that's documented in the book. There were thousands of them, mostly in the Northeast and on into the Midwest, although there was a later era in California and Nevada also. Uh, but uh, those kind of went out of business when the railroads came along. Uh, railroads uh, uh, got to places faster than, because those, those turnpikes were for horse-drawn vehicles. And so railroads really spelled pretty much the demise of those early turnpikes. When we started having automobiles and paved roads, uh, uh, the, it would have been nice to have uh, toll roads, but uh, uh, states invented per gallon gas taxes as a user fee. And it was, and the money in every state was dedicated solely to building and maintaining highways. And that was not too bad of a model. Uh, today we have electronic toll collection, so it's cheap and easy to do, but they didn't have that uh, then. Uh, right. But the turning point came with the, with the interstate system because uh, Congress was not really involved other than a little bit of subsidy for post roads, which is in the constitution. Uh, when when the, the inspiration for the interstate highways was the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Limited access, no stoplights, no, no places, you know, you had, you had to get on at certain places and so forth, a much safer divided highway. And by the time Congress got around to legislating in 1955, which failed in 1956, which, which succeeded, there were a dozen or more uh, uh, financed uh, uh, toll roads that became grandfathered into the interstate highway, the Ohio Turnpike, the Indiana Toll Road, Boston, uh, the Massachusetts Turnpike, New York Thruway, all those were already in existence by the time the interstate program was authorized. But what and Eisenhower wanted it to be a toll road system like those. But when people yeah. crunched the numbers, uh, the South didn't have enough, South was way lower population and, and low, low economy. And much of the West, would not have had enough business in the early years to pay enough tolls to finance the, uh, the tolls. So they ended up coming up with, all right, we'll adopt this, the fuel tax model that the states have and say, create a dedicated highway trust fund that money would only be spent to build and maintain the interstates. Well, that worked for a while, but uh, uh, as, the, as the interstates uh, got built and cost more, they had to raise it. Uh, gas tax rates several federal several times, and the money rolled in faster than, than it was being spent. So Congress started, well, what else can we do with this money? There was no chance they were going to stop collecting it when the interstates were finished. Uh, so every every four years or so, they added new things that could be that the money could be spent on. Today, over twenty five percent of the highway trust fund goes to non highway things, mass transit in the biggest part, uh, and but also sidewalks, bike paths, things that are inherently local. So sure. the federal program, and in the last 12 years or so, uh, Congress has, re has decided we can't raise the federal gas tax any higher. It stayed at 18 cents uh, a gallon since uh, uh, it's, it's over 20 years now. And so instead, they keep, want to keep on spending more each year. So they use general fund money, which means it's not user pays uh, to 
pump up the highway trust fund so they can spend as much as they want to do. So that system really is, is, has turned out to be a very bad system. Um, and it's gotten even worse. Uh, uh, it's, it's bad at the state level too, because most states divert some fraction, anywhere from maybe 5% to in some states, more than 50% of the gas taxes to other, mostly other transportation things. Although in Texas, a big chunk of it goes for public schools, believe it or not. So uh, you have all these bizarre things. And then the legislatures, uh, which have to make a, every year a decision on how to spend highway money, the money they get from the feds and the money they collect. Um, every legislator wants a project in his, in his or her district that they can say, look, I, what I brought you would cut a ribbon. Uh, maintenance is not sexy. There's no ribbon cutting operation. So maintenance tends to get underfunded, which is why in many states we have hundreds or even a few thousand uh, bridges that are, that are uh, in bad condition. And, uh, and they're not spending enough. They, they get, many states get further behind every year on the backlog of deferred maintenance on bridges and on, on major highways too. Uh, but it varies greatly by state. Some are much more responsible, but the ongoing temptations for, for legislators to skimp on maintenance and do ribbon cutting opportunities. And so that is a broken system. Interesting. So, you know, as you mentioned, we're currently financing highways with per gallon gas taxes. Yeah. Uh, what happens when cars continue to increase in their, in their fuel efficiency yep. or, you I'll know, use which is, yeah, other forms of energy altogether? Well, what's happened, we reckon, I was on a, a committee of the Transportation Research Board in about 2006 that was convened to look at this problem. Uh, even though you know electric cars were just a gleam in people's eyes at that point, and we concluded for the long term this is probably not going to be viable to really continue rely on this, and, and that in the short term we ought to be encouraging more toll roads and more toll lanes, uh, but longer term we'll have to come up with a replacement. And then Congress appointed a national commission that my my colleague Adrian Moore at Recent Foundation served on that looked at 15 or 16 different kinds of user fee mechanisms, concluded that a per mile charge would be the best and fairest way to do. And so uh, Reason Foundation uh, was a founding member of an organization called the Mileage-Based User Fee Alliance. That's mm -hmm. now I think 10 or 12 years old. And it has fostered research and uh, Congress has provided uh, some grant money for state DOTs to do pilot projects, testing out uh, per mile charges. And we've learned a whole lot from those uh, things. People have a lot of fears that this is gonna be uh, some kind of gizmo in the car that tracks every place you go and violates your privacy. And that's a bad thing to have in government's hands. I agree that's something we should not do, but we're learning ways to do it and protect privacy in some of these state level projects. And uh, so I've done a lot of work. A reason is doing a series of state-specific studies on how to transition from gas taxes to per mile charges in ways that will try to lead to the vision in my book of highways becoming more like a utility. You know, we have investor-owned util electric utilities and water utilities. We have municipal and state-run electric and water utilities. Uh, they, I'd rather have the investor-owned ones, but both of them are much better than the way we run highways. Uh, you pay user fees to your water supplier or your electric supplier or your telephone supplier based on exactly what you use, not more. 
uh, and the money all goes to, to build and maintain those systems. Far different from how we do highways. So if we can, we have an opportunity, a once in a hundred, once in a century opportunity with the need to transition away from the gas tax to do it in a way that fosters highway utilities. And that's one of the things we're looking hard on, on uh, trying to get across. And I'm giving talks at conferences on this and uh, uh, hope we're making headway. So, uh, you know, interesting that Biden uh, chose infrastructure and roads as really kind of the, the signature priority for his first, hopefully last, but uh, for, for his, to, to begin his administration with. Yeah. Um, do you see some of those same kinds of limitations in terms of a, a politicized approach or, you know, is it just pretty much the, the usual. Well, the bill, the bill that passed is very much a mixed bag. It, 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 it refunded the ongoing highway and federal highway transit program with, with the increase in money that's all being paid for by putting it on the federal credit card, meaning increases the national debt. Um, and it has a, a big new, what are called discretionary programs. You know, most highway spending, uh, traditionally goes out by formulas that are devised by Congress. And states collect the federal gas tax, send it to Washington, and then Congress divvies it up by formula based on population and roads and so forth. Well, this, this bill, the bipartisan bill that was passed uh, has expanded uh, formula programs, but it also has a huge increase in the discretionary programs that the USDOT itself gets to decide what the money is for, set the criteria, and it turns out the USDOT under the Biden administration is not very pro-highways. Uh, they actually sent out a memo to all state DOTs saying, yeah, we know the formula programs allow you to add lanes to highways and to build more new highways, but we want you to spend the money on fixing the existing highways and adding, adding bike paths and sidewalks and things like that and transit and not expanding highway capacity. And this created a huge furor. I wrote about it in my newsletter. I did an interview with Bond Buyer Magazine about it. And uh, it created a firestorm with, with Republican governors writing to, uh, to Congress and the DOT with many members of the Senate, bipartisan Senate members who crafted the bill saying, way, DOT is way out of line trying to tell states and basically hinting that if they, uh, if they go ahead and do what they want to do with uh, adding to highway capacity. Uh, they're gonna to have to face all kinds of this environmental rigmarole and so forth. But if they spend it the way we want, uh, those projects will get an easier uh, pass. So this is, this is not very good. Uh, why, do you think, why do you think they took that approach? Is it just because they're well, you know, I mean, ambivalent? There's an ideological commitment uh, on uh, various transit and environmental groups that highways are inherently bad because cars pollute and, and they put out CO2 in addition to, to traditional pollutants. And therefore we need to uh, stop building highways. I mean, it's okay if we maintain the ones we've got, but there should not be any more capacity. And even there's even a provision in the bill that was watered down by the Senate, but 
that provides grant money for uh, those cities that wish to start look at tearing down uh, interstates that were built through cities that disrupted neighborhoods. Well, that was you know 50 years ago. Uh, those right. same people aren't there, um, but there's money you know, set aside to do that. So in a way, uh, very big aspects of the infrastructure bill were anti-highway, believe it or not. Uh, and you wouldn't know that from from the from the media, you know, talking about this. And so many stories that this is basically a highway and bridges bill. Well, highway and bridges are about ten percent of the total uh, of of the total new money. Ten uh, percent. Yeah. Wow. Well, lots of other stuff is infrastructure too. I mean, there's money for broadband infrastructure in rural areas, uh, which is probably not very cost effective. There's money for uh, uh, lead, lead pipe removal and water systems. You know, these are not bad things, but they're not what people traditionally think of in, in an infrastructure bill in people's minds is a highway and bridges bill. And it's very right. much not that. So. Well, now I want, I know we've got a lot of Bob Poole fans uh, that are here um, watching us and uh, that are uh, on our ch chat uh, thread there. So I want to encourage all of you um, to take advantage of this, type in a question, say hi to Bob, um, but uh, ask, you can ask about Ayn Rand, Heinlein, we're going to get to that a little bit. Uh, later about our infrastructure, about reason and the incredible uh, story and example there. But um, another issue though that I wanted to, to ask you about uh, is one that's also bedeviled the Biden administration that's supply chain interruptions. Um, are any of these challenges aggravated by problems with our approach to infrastructure or is it something entirely different? Well, I mean, this is a very, it's, it's a multi-part. There's no one thing that the administration or anybody else could do to solve it. I um, mean, you have, uh, partly because of the, all the stimulus bills, uh, people spent, uh, they couldn't go to restaurants, they couldn't go to movies, they couldn't go to sports events. So they bought things for their houses. Uh, they bought new refrigerators, they bought uh, home fixer up things. And so this increase in demand for products uh, uh, and either raw, raw materials or the actual products came from Asia, most of it. So you have this huge increase in the demand for, for things being shipped uh, on in containers uh, to the United States. Ports are overloaded, can't handle this. Um, partly the uh, dock workers are, are homesick with COVID, uh, but it's partly just there's no way, there's not enough space to store the containers until they can be hauled. The railroads got overwhelmed. Uh, containers stack up in, in rail yards and places where they shouldn't be. They don't get shipped back. Uh, so there's all these moving parts that make this an, just an enormous problem. And it's gonna have to be worked out step by step. And the few things that uh, the Biden administration has tried to do um, haven't made any real difference. I mean, uh, they, they told the ports of LA and Long Beach, well, you need to go to 24 hour ships. Well. The truckers who have to take the containers have nowhere that's open to take the containers to in the night. I mean, it's true that uh, the ports in Asia are mostly 24-7, the ports, the big ports in Europe are mostly 24-7, but they have been institutions that have adapted to that over, over many, many, many years, probably decades. We don't have that here. We don't, I don't think we have any 24-7 ports. So you, it's, you can't just wave your hand and say, uh, you know, keep it open 24 hours and, and 
because there's there's no place for the drivers to take the, the containers to that are that's open at midnight. So that's that's something that maybe we'll get to that in a few years, um, but it's not going to solve the immediate problem. And fortunately, the backlog of ships that are anchored that was over it was 115 about a month ago off the ports of LA and Long Beach is yeah. now down into the 70s. <laughs> they don't have room in the harbor. They're way out, uh, you know, 50 or 70 miles out, uh, uh, just uh, trying yeah, to- Yeah, I've been seeing it. I've, I've uh, lived here in, in Malibu for 20 years, never ever see any any ship, really uh -huh. anything out, uh, at least this this far up. But it's it's been a little picturesque to have all of these container ships, something something no. different, but um, definitely. But, I mean, definitely. one good thing did come out of this, the Port of Long Beach had some kind of, of rule that container stacks could only be two, two containers high because it blocked people's views. I don't know if any port, you, you, you could drive past the Port of Oakland, you see these mountains of containers, the Port of LA is who? This was a completely artificial, ridiculous thing that did get changed because they had to have space for the containers at Long Beach. Weird. So uh, you have been probably evaluating, following um, various governors on transportation, of course, various administrations, various transportation secretaries. So looking back, maybe you could tell us who uh, who has historically done the best? What administration made the most progress on uh, transportation and infrastructure? Um, best secretary of transportation, and and uh, how would you grade uh, secretary? <laughs> okay, well, at the, at the federal level, the best secretary of transportation we ever had was Mary Peters. Uh, the second term of the George W. Bush administration. She put together a team of brilliant people, all of whom I got to know, and I'm still friends with, with all of them. Uh, they did very innovative things. Uh, there was one time when Congress uh, didn't earmark money for some, some year, and there was money that came, became available to DOT. And so Mary Peters and her team figured out a grant program to uh, incentivize uh, cities to uh, put in price, variably priced, you know, market priced congestion relief lanes. And something that I had worked on for years, this is the first time there was a concerted effort at the federal government to really get, get them to do it. And, uh, and I, I played a little part in, in being an informal advisor on, on, on some of that. And I actually then got to work with Florida DOT to uh, help them write their proposal. Uh, which won one of those grants and implemented the first express toll lanes in, in Florida, uh, in Miami on I-95, which was very good. Uh, every time we drive to Miami, I'm in Lou, my wife calls them the Bob lanes. <laughs> so Although I have to say, I was just in Miami two weeks ago and traffic was yeah, it's, so it's, bad. It's pretty I bad. It looks like they're they're doing some construction, but well, there's a major interchange being reconstructed, uh, I-95 and a and the uh, Dolphin Toll Road and a major arterial all come together, and that, that interchange called Golden Glades has just grown like topsy. It was never designed to be what it is. It has more than twice the amount of traffic that it was ever uh, capable of doing without huge backlogs, and even the price lanes, the price lanes are not allowed to charge a full market clearing price. 
So mm -hmm. they get backed up in the afternoon rush hour too because of that congestion at that bottleneck interchange. But that that one that one is not being redesigned. The one that further down, closer to downtown Miami, uh, is being rebuilt. It's about an eight hundred million dollar project, and it's taking about four years. But it'll be much much better when that's done. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also kind of the price of, of success with uh, so many people moving exactly. to. Florida. Florida is a huge success story as a state. Its DOT has been very, very good. Uh, yeah. It has a master plan to have express toll lanes in all four major areas. Uh, there's always pushback on you can't always get all the projects in that you want to, but uh, they're working hard. The Miami area, Tampa, Orlando, and Jacksonville all have express lane projects in place and others in the planning stages. So uh, I, I Florida DOT has, has been a very good Texas DOT until the legislature cracked down on, on tolling. Populist Republicans in Texas uh, have controlled the legislature and the governor's office for the last uh, decade and stopped what was uh, uh, you know, over, over 10 billion of private investment in express toll lanes, mostly in, in uh, Dallas and, and uh, Houston areas. And it's all been on hold uh, since the legislature changed to be a populist Republican that, that's anti-toll and uh, very dis dis distray distressing. Well, uh, maybe we can give some uh, um, unvarnished, your unvarnished take on uh, this question from Manny Vega on Facebook uh, asking about Texas. Texas toll okay. roads keep rising in price, even though local transportation authorities promise that the price should have gone down by now. Have you studied whether this is mismanagement or otherwise? Well, most of the toll roads in Texas are, are express toll lanes that were privately financed, although some were state financed. And the rates there have to go up. Uh, the purpose of them is to be a, essentially market clearing price. Uh, the price that will, that will guarantee that you can go at least 45 miles per hour during rush hour. And if, if, uh, if a dollar a mile toll doesn't do it, Maybe a dollar twenty will do it. It's trial and error, and those tolls are reset in real time. And most of those things, they're reset every five minutes based on the actual traffic flow. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so that I, I can't quarrel with. Uh, I can't quarrel with that policy. Now there are some toll roads uh, uh, run by state agencies um, that have to keep up. They're, they're building more. Uh, toll roads because uh, of Texas is growing so by leaps and bounds. Similar to, and and yeah. it's, it's expensive. But today, to build a lane mile of interstate quality road costs three times as much in real terms as it cost in the uh, 1960s when the interstates were first being built. Now, that's partly because of environmental regulations, it's partly because of litigation that's permitted by the Clean Air Act and the National Environmental Policy Act. Uh, but those are, and, and the cost of materials, uh, concrete, asphalt, steel, all those things have gone up a lot too in the decades since then. So uh, if you're going to have a state enabled to keep growing by expanding a highway system in pace with its population, you have to pay what it costs today. And then if it's financed by tolls, uh, that means the toll rates, uh, uh, even the, you know, those toll rates, those, let's say in Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, it's the, uh, 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 what is it called? It's called originally the Dallas North Tollway. It's, it's, a, it's a toll organization that um, has a system. And so 
the tolls from each of the roads go to pay the costs of the entire system. So as they're adding new legs, uh, the initial traffic on leg B may not quite cover it in the first five years. So it's, it's fi financed by the revenues from all of the system. And so that's why the rates have to go up across the board to pay for the growth of the overall system that's needed for the whole metro area. And As so, uh, someone we know says, ten ton stoffel, there ain't no free lunch. Exactly, exactly. So, and this is what they cost. Now, if we could somehow reform NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, so mm -hmm. that every citizen group under the sun could have a cause to file suit against a new hiring project and mm -hmm. delay things out for 10 or 12 years, and the, you know, the price goes up all that time of, of labor materials and so forth. If we reform that, uh, and you don't have that kind of, of citizen uh, litigation obstacle endlessly, you don't have it in France, you don't have it in Italy, you do have it in Germany, and to some extent in the UK. But if we were to reform, which I don't see any near-term hope of doing, but uh, that, that would make some difference in, in holding down the cost increases of highways, but... Uh, all right, we've got another question here uh, from Anna Flanagan on Facebook. I'm going to ask you the question, let you answer it while I get a little backup power for the studio here. Oh. Um, Anna, <laughs> okay. Anna asks, what do you make about the failure of protecting railroads in places like L.A. and San Francisco from being looted? Uh, that is a horrible situation. Uh, uh, it's a failure of, of uh, I think it's politically correct lefty district attorneys uh, uh, who do not file charges uh, uh, against looting and, and uh, 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 this kind of thing. I mean, the epidemic of looting stores, shoplifting in San Francisco is, and the whole San Francisco Bay Area is just unbelievable. It's worse in San Francisco. They have a DA there. And, and a, a legal change that uh, shoplifting, I think up to $999 is now a misdemeanor and they will not uh, uh, prosecute uh, mis misdemeanors of that sort. Uh, so it's an invitation to shoplifting gangs and the gangs that, that you see, you've all seen, I'm sure the photos of the rail corridors uh, leading from the ports uh, of the Alameda corridor, rail corridor, uh, that's a lifeline for the ports of LA and Long Beach to get cargo tickets. Those are being looted all the time uh, through the failure of law enforcement and the failure of prosecution. Uh, and uh, we don't see that happening hardly any place except California, but it's, it's epidemic. All right, well, I noticed you didn't give a grade to Buttigieg. Well, I, I uh, all right, I, I don't want to be too harsh because he's only in his, just he's been there for less than a year. And half, uh, half of that he, time unfortunately, he, he has years, so. does not have a transportation background. Mary Peters, for example, uh, was I think she ran the DOT in Arizona, where she's from. Then she ran the Federal Highway Administration, and then she was appointed to be Secretary of Transit. So she was eminently qualified, knew transportation at all levels, uh, at every mode. Uh, Pete was a mayor of a small city and uh, was apparently a, a competent mayor, but uh, city streets and sidewalks have nothing to do with what the federal world is supposed to be in transportation. And so he comes, I think, with a, a background that doesn't really fit the position, unfortunately. 
and I uh, it seemed I think was seen as a as a uh, politically attractive appointment uh, for a democratic administration that uh, is trying to curry favor with its progressive wing, and uh, as a first, I guess the first gay cabinet member. Uh, uh, wow, what a big big thing to do! Mm -hmm. uh, just like appointing the first black female Supreme Court uh, justice. Well, I mean, it's fine if you get somebody who's really qualified, but uh, um, I think the qualifications for the DOT secretary in this case were, were pretty pretty meager. So we could we can give him the benefit of the doubt and see how it all turns out. A lot depends on, on the staff that are supporting. And actually the acting administrator of Federal Highway Administration responsible for that memo to the state DOTs, unfortunately, uh, came from Massachusetts DOT. So at least does have a, a DOT, state DOT background. So she may turn out to be a better, uh, a more qualified uh, uh, person than the man running the whole US DOT. Sorry. All right, we're, we're going to, uh, to start getting more into some questions uh, about reason and the liberty mm -hmm. movement and your um, perspective on that. Uh, but uh, as a transitional one, kind of spans both of the subjects is Elon Musk. He's a controversial figure uh -huh. in some libertarian circles um, for accepting government subsidies. But uh, I have been of the opinion that he, he seems much more like a, a Hank Reardon for his innovations with electric vehicles, tunnel technology, space travel. So I don't know if you have uh, where uh, you stand on. Okay, that's my view entirely. I mean, I, he's a big hero. I've read several books about him. Uh, I, I, I've watched just about, uh, well, the, the Falcon 9 launches and recovers are so routine now that I don't watch those anymore. But uh, when the, the first Starship launch, I'm gonna be watching that just eagerly and probably in, in tears uh, uh, at what a triumph that thing is. I mean, he, in, he has, he, with, with Jeff Bezos coming up uh, as in good second place, invented reusable launch vehicles, which is the first step toward real commercialization of space for goods and people and space exploration, making it af affordable in, by comparison to the massive costs of, of NASA development uh, with traditional aerospace contractors. Uh, I mean, innovation, innovation, innovation. It's just spectacular. Tesla too. I mean, I don't, I don't own a Tesla uh, and I don't like the big, big touch screen. Um, and I don't trust the automation, which uh, I think was developed with, uh, with some flaws, but it's still an extremely innovative vehicle and it's paving the way. It's a model for the entire electric vehicle industry uh, that is learning from what Tesla has done. So I, I, taking advantage of, of the fact that the government uh, is willing to subsidize uh, people to buy electric vehicles and that he can get credits from, from uh, companies that are starting out making vehicles that don't sell, uh, you know, he can get credits and they make some of their money on that. But, you know, those, he didn't invent, he didn't ask for those programs, he didn't invent them. He's an entrepreneur running a company. If, that, if the law provides that, uh, I, you know, he's not a libertarian, so I can't say, I, I, I hope I wouldn't take them if I, were, if I were as big of an innovator, an entrepreneur as he. Uh, but I can't really fault him for, for, for doing that, not given what he's given the world in these incredible uh, uh, breakthroughs. 
Yeah, agreed. I, I don't quite understand the vitriol that, that comes. And we have, there are so few real heroes out there. It's, it's, right. it's so wonderful to have a few like Bezos and, and Musk. Uh, so uh, speaking of, of, of Musk um, and this technology, how far do you think we are away from self-driving trucks? And what do you anticipate would be the- uh, I, yeah, I, I have written, uh, I believe that, that uh, trucks are gonna be the first viable application of vehicle automation. Partly because uh, it's the, the model that's likely to be occur is, is the automation will be for the long haul on limited access interstate highways and comparable roads. Uh, the local traversing and getting off the highway will probably be done by for a long time by a human driver getting to a distribution center to deliver the goods. Um, but the, the highway part is relatively easy by comparison. It's, a, it's a, an operational domain that doesn't have children running out and, and dogs mm -hmm. chasing balls and uh, all the construction debris and so forth. It's a very uh, benign environment for an automated truck. And the potential of this is enormous in terms of improving the productivity. Railroads operate, they're slow, slower than trucks, but they operate 24 hours a day. Uh, truck drivers have, have federal rules. They have to stop and get eight hours of, of rest. So trucks do not operate 24 seven. Uh, uh, if trucks can operate 24 seven on the long haul, uh, they'd be much more competitive with railroads and the cost, the relative cost of goods will go down. <clears throat> People always say, oh, well, but this is going to put all kinds of drivers out of work. Well, there happens to be an on chronic massive shortage, particularly of long haul over the road truck drivers. The turnover rate in some years at some major companies is 70, 80 percent annually. This is very hard jobs for people being away from home. If you change to a model where the human drivers are mostly doing local runs and the automation is doing uh, the long haul, uh, you'll have a much better chance of having satisfied employees who can be home every night with their families instead of on the road uh, most, of their, most of their lives. Um, this I think is gonna be a benefit to everybody in trucking uh, as this comes up. And I think we're, we're, we have vehicles now operating in Texas uh, like between Houston and, and, and Austin and, uh, uh, and in Arizona on, on uh, reasonably long distance routes. They all, they're still operating with a safety driver on board, but they can, they're doing it autonomously in, that, in that, those benign environments. So we're, it's a question of, of, uh, of getting the you know, legalization, uh, demonstrating the case that it's, it's safe enough to be, to be allowed without the safety driver on board. Now, I, one of the things that may make that more, more viable is to have real-time supervision from, uh, from an office where, where drivers, uh, virtual you know, drivers who are able, are able to take over control if something goes wrong and, mm -hmm. and safely park the truck. Maybe the, maybe the automation can do that, but it may not be able to do it in every circumstance. So the ability to have a remote driver able to step in when needed uh, may be a kind of thing that's needed in the early years of this. But I think we're probably five years away uh, from some of this being real with no drivers on board and 10 years away from it being large and, and a major part of the industry. Uh, it's it's going to be, it's much further away than personal vehicles that can operate 
under any kind of, and you notice they're starting in Texas and Arizona where there's no snow. Mm -hmm. Snow is hard for the, uh, for the uh, AI uh, uh, to deal with uh, and for the sensors to see through and so forth. Uh, the road markings aren't clear often. Right. So uh, uh, cars to be a ubiquitous personal vehicle have to basically operate in almost any environment, any operational design domain. Uh, and that is a much, much harder problem to solve. So a lot of predictions five years ago about how soon all this was going to be happening were just fans, completely fanciful. Uh, we, the people in AI didn't realize how difficult this was going to be and how expensive the sensors were going to be. And, and there's still a lot of uh, fights going on over whether camera type things can, uh, can do all that's needed or you need LIDAR and this and that, the other thing, and none of that is, is settled. Uh, so it's gonna be uh, a long years away. And there's a question of uh, what's, who's gonna, what kind of insurance is there gonna be for fully autonomous personal vehicles? Are they gonna be owned by individuals? Or are they gonna be leased by fleets to individuals or to, uh, uh, to operators like, like Uber and Lyft and so forth? where the fleet can take the legal responsibility if, the, if something goes wrong with the automation. It's very clear cut. And you don't have a, que a legal question of is it, is it the vehicle owner, dry, individual driver who maybe somehow was at fault and you could get hugely complicated legal things out of that. And I don't think the insurance industry wants is, is set to handle that in that fashion. Well, we've They're got a lot more questions here okay. about, about Musk, about trucks uh about tolls but i uh did want to also jump over to oh, our good. other topic um and this is a, tell us about the origins of this book it's, it's a little bit of a memoir as well it, it, so. it is yeah uh well actually a, a a senior official that i knew from mary peters of the ot <laughs> Uh, asked me, I was saying, suggesting he should write a book about his experience there. And he said, well, when are you going to write your book? Uh -huh. uh, oh, maybe I should write a book. But it still didn't kick until my, my MIT reunion when I was asked to give a, a, a talk to my class uh, mates at that reunion, the 50th reunion, believe it or not, about my unusual career. They had picked out five people who had non-traditional engineering careers. And so I had to create this elaborate presentation. And I thought of all the things that, that, that I had done as an entrepreneur starting Recent Foundation, uh, probably different than, than most starters of public policy think tanks and put together this 50, 50 or 60 slide presentation. And then I thought, gee, maybe that could make the basis for a book. For <laughs> and So I decided uh, to do that and when, when Reasons 50, Reasons Magazine's 50th anniversary was coming, was a few years away from that point. Mm -hmm. And I suggested to David, what if I wrote a book? And he said, my God, do it. Do it in, and do it in time for the 50th anniversary. How am I going to do it in that time? I was finishing up the Highways book. Wow. And so I had the final stages of one book and the start of the other, and I somehow got them both uh, done and published. Uh, uh, and so that was really the origin. And so I decided to try the story of how did I get to this? Because that's only the first chapter to this position uh, of, of discovering the fledgling Reason magazine that Lanny Friedlander started in 1968 at, as a student at Boston University and, and uh, 
Uh, I discovered uh, through a little classified ad and subscribed in its first year, it was mimeographed. He was obviously an objectivist or certainly influenced by the name of the magazine, the things he wrote about and what he said. Uh, He persuaded me to write an article for an issue of the second year and didn't tell me that he was switching to offset print, typesetting and offset printing. And the first issue that had that was the issue with my article uh, calling for airline deregulation called, which he titled, Fly the Frenzied Skies after the United <laughs> Airlines uh, slogan. And I saw that, I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. I did this and, and I, so I decided I would continue writing. And then the Freeman from, uh, from Foundation for Economic Education reprinted the article. Reason that those days had 400 subscribers the Freeman had about 40,000. And I started from the Freeman, I started getting letters from professors, from uh, wow. people in government about that article. And I thought, you know, this, this could be powerful if it's done at a larger scale. And so when, when, when Lanny Friedlander started uh, you know, running out of money and calling me and calling my new friend Tibor McCann uh, in Santa, uh, living in Santa Barbara by that time, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and Tibor was getting his PhD in philosophy, objectivist philosopher. We became friends and decided we would try to take reason off, off Lanny's hands because he couldn't, he was out of money and had a subscription liability. And so we came up with this plan and we rounded up our wives and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Manny Klossner, a lawyer in, in Los Angeles who Tibor had met and was a bona fide libertarian with background at the University of Chicago. He was part of the staff of a, of a journal, a libertarian journal that was there. So we created Reason Enterprises to do the magazine as a hobby business. And we somehow had enough naive good luck that we built the circulation to 10,000 in seven years. Uh, thanks in part to Nathaniel Brandon helping by letting us use his mailing list after we persuaded him that we were not anarchists and we were responsible people. <laughs> and, uh, and he gave us an interview, the first interview that, uh, that he had given anyone after the, his split break several years ago with Ayn Rand. So that created a big buzz and we got lots of new subscribers from that. But by the time uh, 1977 came around, uh, uh, Cato Institute was being started and they were going to do two magazines with big funding from the Koch uh, brothers. And we decided, uh, I said, look, we, we cannot go on as a hobby business. We either have to figure out a way to raise money and put this on a professional full-time basis. And I need to get paid if I was going to run it, uh, which I de facto was anyway. Um, and so that was the led to creation of Reason Foundation. And we found an angel investor and opened an office in Santa Barbara and uh, Somehow it worked. We made some big mistakes, and uh, uh, but the biggest, the biggest success thing was moving to LA in 1970, uh, uh, in 1986, mm-hmm. um, after uh, starting in 78 in Santa Barbara, because that put us on the map. And and uh, LA Times all of a sudden took us seriously. Wrote an article about our moving to LA. We did uh, monthly lunch events in downtown LA, and reporters came, and business people came. We did annual banquets. All of a sudden, we were we were a real thing then, and uh, it, it made a difference. So I, I tell all that story in the book, and then I tell uh, then I confess that as as an entrepreneur, I ran it at very close to the line, uh, focusing on growth, and did not build any reserves. And uh, so we we were in 
very bad shape in years where there was a recession. And my successor, David Knott, who we very, very fortunate to recruit, um, was focused full-time on growing Reason Foundation and growing the financial base and has done an incredible job of uh, building the organization. We have, I think, close to a year's budget uh, in the bank, earning interest and in, invested in stocks and so forth, and a little bit of Bitcoin. <laughs> and, um, and, and major grant programs that are multi-year and so forth. So uh, he's, and it's thanks to, to David's uh, skill in growth and fundraising that we bought a building in LA and paid off the mortgage in three years, opened an office and a full-time office in DC and uh, raised our presence in DC and uh, started Reason TV, which was suggested to us by Drew Carey, uh, who had been a Reason reader and fan for years and uh, thought, uh, we should have a presence in, in the, the visual media that helped us find producers and, and uh, uh, educated us on what it takes to produce video and uh, starred in the first uh, 20 documentaries that, that it produced. So uh, it's been a, a great show uh, after that. I was, I was the startup entrepreneur and David was the, the builder. Uh, and uh, Reason is, is in very solid shape uh, today. I think. I think we have uh, something like 80 staff. I, I can't really keep, I'm on the board still, but I can't keep track of, of the staff. I don't know half of the staff uh, personally. Um, and the budget is, is I think it's is 15 or 16 million. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a, and it was, it was five when I, when I stepped down and David replaced me. So, and the reserves, it's just fabulous. Well, I, I can tell you for someone who uh, is running a much smaller Liberty organization. This is this is kind of a good kind of a good blueprint. I would highly recommend it to anyone uh, you, out much. there, um, particularly in the Liberty space, in in the nonprofit management space, even uh, more generally because of uh, the tremendous growth. It's not just of the magazine and its subscription. How you guys have kept pace with these uh, disruptions in um, communication technology. And, uh, and then of course also, you know, the really unique uh, work that you do. I mean, we were talking before, I was like, is there anybody else doing like transportation? Right, right. well, it's not like it's transportation, it's school choice, it's public yeah. pension reform, the pension uh, it's reform criminal stuff. justice reform. Uh, I mean, all these programs and all of them, uh, David, David Knott calls it uh, using the, the DNA that I created of being pragmatic libertarians, not, right. If you're trying to change policy, you don't start by trying to make everybody libertarian. You focus on why the status quo is do doing poorly, how a privatized type or market type solution is better in its own terms. It certainly advances our worldview, definitely, and builds the case for a more freer society. But you don't sell it on people have to be libertarians in order to buy the policy. And that right. pragmatic libertarian approach uh, has been a key, I think, to the success of all of our programs and be willing to work with, we don't take any government money, never have and never will, but we call the, the motivated people in the public sector that want our advice, we call them our customers. And we're happy to have them as customers. Uh, mayor Steve Goldsmith, who privatized 50 public services in Indianapolis when he was mayor and got written up, got national awards. One of, one of my star pupils 
Mitch Daniels, who's now the, the head of, of, uh, of Purdue University, um, was, was helped on Mitch Daniels, on, on uh, Steve Goldsmith's mayoral uh, program. He became the director of OMB under George W. Bush. And then he became governor of Indiana and privatized the Indiana toll road with help from me. And so, I mean, we've got customers like that, that uh, we are very proud to have. And it's not the traditional thing to do. Literally where the rubber meets the road. Okay, I've got three more minutes. I absolutely am not gonna let you go without asking you about Heinlein. Um, Ah, And the, uh, the, how you discovered that he was a reason fan Mm -hmm and how that led to a private- first, first, I grew up reading Heinlein science fiction. He was the one who started, laid the basis for my becoming a libertarian. Individualism, questioning authority, st- strong uh, creator type, being able to accomplish things. Uh, then uh, in the early days of Reason Enterprises, uh, uh, run out of, out of my house. So the uh, you know, postal service requires a street address. So the street address was there. Mm-hmm. I got a, a Christmas card from, from Ginny Heinlein one year saying how much uh, they enjoyed the magazine and Robert saved them. So I started a regular postal mail correspondence with her, hoping to get an interview with, with Heinlein for the magazine. Well, that turned out to be they had a policy that uh, some interviews had gone bad. But, but she said, but we'd love, happy, happy to have you visit. So needless to say, it was not that far from Santa Barbara to Santa Cruz. So we planned a vacation trip uh, to go there and we're invited to spend the afternoon at the swimming pool, got a tour of the house that, that Robert designed. And we were pleasant enough that we were invited to stay for dinner and had a lovely dinner talking about all kinds of things. And uh, before we left, he uh, asked if I had any of his books. And of course I had a box of first editions that I had bought that I hoped he would autograph. I brought them inside. He autographed all uh, treasures that I will never part with. Uh, uh, But uh, it was a great experience. And he he really did love Reason Magazine and and save the issues. So that uh, it's one of the many uh, uh, psychic rewards that I got for all the years of hard work and and close to the line uh, things and things that failed and so forth was getting to meet heroes like that, Margaret Thatcher, to be on the stage with Lady Thatcher after she was no longer prime minister and ask her questions from the audience uh, and, and to talk with her, have her autograph my copy of Downing Street Years uh, uh, and the reception before that banquet. I mean, these things are, are values Prices. that uh, there's, no, there's no money value you can attach to those. So it's rewards for, uh, for hard work and, and having good ideas, well, I guess. And, and the tremendous love and esteem um, that so many of us feel for you, uh, for reason, um, and uh, for the continued wonderful work that, that you're doing. I want to recommend everyone go out and get a copy of a think tank for on, Amazon. Me, uh, on Amazon and um, also Rethinking America's Highways. I have. I have not only read this, but I have reviewed it on Amazon. So you can go and check that out. Make sure to sign up for, uh, go to the Reason website, sign up for their email updates, follow them on social media. And perhaps I'll even see some of you at the next uh, Reason retreat, which is coming up in Nashville. Nashville. 
Good. Look forward to seeing you, Bob, and Lou there. And congratulations and thank you again for giving this time to us and, and for giving us this incredible example to follow. I enjoyed this very much. Thanks. Okay. Bye.